0: If your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Romans, to the very last chapter. Romans chapter 16. We are not finishing Romans today, but we will be finishing it soon in the weeks to come. Um, it has been a long road to get to the end of this book, but a good road, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, this morning, we are looking at Romans chapter 16, the first 16 verses. Look with me and hear what Paul writes. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greek. Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church of their house. Greet my beloved uh, Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophana and Traphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, what a blessing it is to have your word. What a privilege it is to bring your word to your people. And so, Father, as I stand here this morning, I do not Rest on my own ability, my own knowledge, my own insight. For these things are failures. But God, we we rest, I rest in the power of your spirit who speaks through your word. And our prayer, my prayer, is that you would be glorified as your word goes forth this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. After seeing some of the looks on your faces when I finished reading this passage, you're probably wondering why this passage is important for us to preach. That's fair. After all, I think if you were to meet a new believer on the street who came up to you and asked, I want to start reading the Bible, where should I begin? I don't think you would send them to Romans 16. (laughs) A chapter with a bunch of hard pronounced names of people from over 2000 years ago. It just wouldn't be the first chapters that you read in the Bible, much less... One of your favorite passages of Scripture. But this passage is important and it matters for a few different reasons. I think first we have to keep in mind when we come to passages like this, that this is still a part of God's word. And because of this, we have to apply to passages like Romans 16. We have to apply Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Chapter three, where Paul writes all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Romans 16 is scripture, which means it has been given to us by God, breathed out by God. And because it has been breathed out by God, that means that this passage, these 16 verses... Help train us in righteousness. Help complete us and transform us more into the image of Christ. I think a second reason that this passage matters is because this passage places the entire letter of Romans within a historical context. Meaning that Romans was not written in the hopes that someone would one day read it and find it useful. Paul wrote this letter to a specific people At a specific place, at a specific time. And passages like this provide us a a glimpse into that specific historical context. And it shows us how God has spoken directly to this group of people in Rome through Paul. Third reason this passage is important. It shows us the importance of Christian friendship. I'm sure that each one of us has someone or maybe even several people who come to mind when you hear that word friend. They are people who are there for you no matter what. They support you in the hard times. They celebrate with you in the good times and they love you everywhere in between. And I've, I've said this. Many times before, but I I think it warrants being said again, and I think it's important that we understand this, that that when we come to faith in Christ, when we become believers, Christians, we not only gain a savior, we gain a people. We gain a place of belonging. And the gospel is never a a me and Jesus sort of thing. But it has always been a we and Jesus thing. Romans 16 highlights the we in Jesus. It highlights this this precious gift of Christian friendship in a beautiful, real world context. Because despite the fact that Paul had never been to Rome and he had never even met several of the people that he mentions here, he loved them. He was thankful for them because they were his family. He was they were his his partners in ministry. And here he commends them for their faith in Christ. And he encourages them to love and to be thankful and to commend and to honor one another. And so here's my plan. I hope here now you understand this passage matters and it teaches us has a lot to teach us here. But here's here's our plan. Here's where we're headed here this morning. First, I want to point out a few things from the passage. That they kind of stand out about the community that Paul is speaking to here. And really, I want to do this under two headings. I want to show you the variety that is involved here, because there is a lot of variety and diversity in this chapter. But I also want to show you the unity that is here. Because these are very different people, but they all belong to one Savior. And they all hold to one gospel. And then after showing you this this variety and this unity, I, I want to show you how Christian friendship is grown. How it is nurtured into something beautiful and precious and needed. What, what I what I want us to see as a church from this passage is that the church with all of the relationships and friendships that come with being a part of the church. The church is a wonderful gift of God given to us by his grace. Christian friendships simply provide us one more reason to be thankful to God for what he has given us. And friends are certainly towards the top of that list. So let's look at the variety in this passage. Just want to point your attention to to some of this, some of the variety that we, we see in this passage. First, notice the variety of names. Not only is there a long list of names, there's about 27 in this list, but there's there's really no order here. Paul doesn't do alphabetical. He doesn't do order of importance or who's who's leading the church. This passage reads very much like Paul was just spitting off names off the top of his head as they came to him. Like, oh, yeah. And and there's that guy and there's the the, his brother and, and his mother. And I remember him like just one after another as they keep coming. But within this list of people, you find Latin names, Greek names, and Jewish names. All mixed in together. And when we consider that one of the primary reasons that Paul is writing this letter to begin with. He's trying to encourage unity within a very diverse church. And these names provide a context that show us this purpose. And we could go back through the letter and we could look at. Chapter one, for example, of Romans, where Paul talked and spent a good bit of time talking about the sin of the Gentiles, the sin of the Greeks, the sin of the Latin people. Then he goes into chapter two, where he talks about the sins of the Jews. And then chapter three, he brings them all together, unified and saying, none of you are righteous, not even one. Then he goes into chapter four and he says that both Jew and Gentile are saved by faith alone. Chapter nine, he shows that God had hardened Jewish hearts so that the Gentiles could believe. Chapter 11, he, he discussed and proved that a day would come when the hardening of Israel would relent and Israel would come to faith in Christ. He pursued unity in chapter 14, where he told Jews and Gentiles not to to flaunt their freedoms in Christ, but to practice them privately, not causing one another to stumble. You see, when you see all these names mixed in, you see Jewish names and Greek names and Latin names all just sort of mixed in together. We see the reason that Paul has been stressing the unity of the church to Rome. Because this church consists of people from all over the place. This variety brings its own challenges with it. But ultimately, variety in the church is a good thing. The gospel is a message that unites people from all parts of the world into one people of God. And this is why we must understand the unifying features of the gospel. And why variety in the church is a good thing. Not everyone who believes in Christ is going to look like you or talk like you. Or live like you. That's a good thing. Also, I think within these various names, we we learn that not only does the gospel cross ethnic borders between Jews and Gentiles, it also crosses socioeconomic borders. Names like Nereus, Hermes, Persis, Herodian, Trophosa, Trophena, and Pleiades, Julia, and Junia, these are all slaves. Where where Paul addresses certain households like the households of Aristobulus and Narcissus, he is likely referring to the slaves who worked for these masters. Others like Asyncritus, Petrobus, Philologus, Andronicus, they were likely freed slaves. And there's even more names that really we can't be certain of their civil status. But what is clear from all of this is that there is a high, high, high percentage of names here. That are either currently slaves or were at one point slaves. And then there's others who are wealthy and who were not slaves. Again, I, I think it's it's worth pointing out that the gospel is for people of all walks of life. Just like not everyone in the church looks like you, so also does not everyone in the church live like you. The gospel is for both the convict and the politician. For the business executive and the homeless. For the techie and the farmer. For the artist and the jock. Yes, the gospel is even for Duke fans and Chapel Hill folks. Because Lord knows you, you and see people need Jesus. Yeah. I, I say it again because I, I need you to see it here. The gospel saves various people and variety in the church is a good thing. Now, in addition to the variety of names, we also see a variety of gender. Paul mentioned several men in the letter, and, and that's not unusual. It's not that surprising. I mean, not only was the, the culture at the time a, a male-dominated culture, but Paul, as an apostle, primarily ministered to and, and spoke to men. And we see this in the letter where, where Paul greets the family of Aristobulus and the family of Narcissus. Here's here, we, we don't know much about these men, but the best guesses that we can make is that these two men were either not Christians... Because they are not greeted. Their families, their households are greeted. Or that they were men who had previously died. And their families are still recognized by the father's name. And while the men here are not that surprising, honestly, the women are. You have 27 names listed here. A third of them are women. And I realize that may not seem that surprising, considering where's the 50-50 split, but consider the, the historical context, consider the cultural context, and a third of the list being women is a huge deal. And I think we have to understand that women have always played and always been a big part of the church. And, they've, and women have played a major role in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Let me just highlight a few of the women here from the list to show you. First, we have Phoebe in the first two verses. Paul says that, that Phoebe is our sister, a servant of the church at Sincrae, and that she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, it's very likely that this Phoebe was the person who actually delivered the letter of Romans to the church in Rome, which is why Paul would commend her and, and explain to the church to say, receive her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints. If she's traveling it also makes sense that for the Romans to help her in whatever she may need, like a place to stay or meals to eat. We also see the, the sister language here, Paul calling her our sister. And Paul wants the, the church, he wants the church to treat this woman like family. Again, emphasizing the, the need for Romans to to take care of Phoebe when she comes. When Christians visit, especially those from far away, we should consider them no matter our previous relationships. You should consider fellow Christians as family, as brothers and sisters. As, as many of you have known and seen my, my family, my wife's family are both from South Carolina. And so we love having them come up. We love having them come and visit with us. But but how silly would it be? How many questions would rise in your mind? If if my family came to visit and you watched as they pulled into the driveway and I said, we're so glad to see you. I'm so glad you're here. Come and hang out and visit for a while. But good luck finding somewhere to stay tonight. Right. if, If we just said, like, we're so glad you're here, but you can't stay here. That's not how you treat family, is it? And so Paul says to the church in Rome, Phoebe is your family. When she comes, treat her like a sister, because she is. And we, too, must do like Paul tells them to do with Phoebe. We should treat fellow believers like they are our brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents and children. and Because that's what they are. The people around you are your family. Treat them like it. Phoebe is also referred to by Paul as a servant of the church at Synchrae. Now, the Greek word for servant is diakonon, from which we get the word deacon. And many have debated whether this word that Paul uses is is Paul saying that Phoebe served as an official role. She was an actual deacon in the church or if Paul just meant that she informally served the church as a church member, but not an official deacon. Now, I, I honestly I'll put my cards on the table here. I don't think Paul's word choice could be any clearer. If Paul meant to say that this woman served the church informally, that she wasn't an official deacon of the church. Then he would have used in the Greek that he wrote this letter in. He would have used the feminine form of the word diakonon. She is a servant. But he doesn't. He uses the masculine form of the word. Which is the same form that you would use when speaking of the actual official office of deacon. I don't think this is an accident. I I don't think Paul slipped up when he wrote this and had a typo. No, Paul wants us to see this woman, Phoebe, who not only served the church, but she served the church in an official capacity as a deacon of the church. And for that, she is to be commended and admired and imitated. We also see that she was likely a woman of means, that she had wealth. And she used her wealth for the good of the church and to help the missionaries like Paul. That's what he means when he calls her a patron of many and of myself as well. She footed the bill. She paid their way. She may not have been able to be there every step of the way, but she could provide resources that would get Paul where he needed to be. And then we, we look down and we see there's uh, Prisca, or as she's called in Acts, Priscilla. This couple, Priscilla and Aquila, met Paul in Ephesus during one of his missionary journeys. And they had a lot in common. Not only were they all Christians, but this woman and her husband, Aquila, they were tent makers. Like Paul. They had the same career. But there's so much more to this woman than her job as a tent maker with her husband. Priscilla, this, this is a woman who privately taught and trained the young missionary Apollos. She she helped him with with her husband, Aquila. They helped train Apollos for the ministry and they actually corrected some of his theological errors. It's likely while they were in Ephesus that Priscilla and Aquila, Paul says, risked their necks for his life. We don't know the specifics of this. We don't know what situation Paul is referring to. But we do know that Paul's life was in was in jeopardy while in Ephesus. And so it's likely that this husband and wife. Protected Paul. Offered him shelter, safe haven, even at great risk to themselves. And we see that Paul is not only he's thankful. Paul says for to whom Priscilla and Aquila to whom I give thanks. But it's not just Paul who's thankful for this this woman and for her husband. He is it is all of the churches of the Gentiles who give thanks for both of them for their faithful ministry. We also see in this list a woman who we don't even have her name, but we know what she did. The mother of Rufus. And Paul says she has been a mother to him as well. I love that. When we think about the life that Paul lived and how how much he traveled and how he served the Lord, I mean, it meant that he was rarely, if ever, home. He was rarely able to go and visit his parents and, and spend time with his siblings. And yet here we see that along the way, as, as Paul travels and as Paul goes and serves the Lord, God provides through the church women who cared for him and loved him like a mother does to a son. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I think families can families can bring some of the deepest and longest lasting hurt. And no other relationship can really ever get close to. Families can frustrate us and they can hurt us. And normally when that happens, you'll often hear some well-intended friend saying, well, you can't choose family. And it's true. But One of the great blessings of the church is that as a Christian, you have been given older men that you can look up to as fathers. Older women that you can look to as mothers. You have brothers and sisters who are there to support and encourage you. And you get to serve these younger men and these younger women and serve to them like spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. You get a family. And much like your biological family, you can't choose family in the church either. But God provides it and it's a blessing. So care for one another, love one another as you would love your own family. And be loved by one another as you ought to be loved by your own mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. But let me take a minute here and I speak directly to the women for a moment. As as we've said, and what I want you to see in this passage is that women have always served an important role in the ministry of the church. The very first people to lay eyes on the resurrected Jesus were Women. Some of the very first missionaries were women. Women have been taking the gospel into places for centuries and millennia that men just could not reach. And the legacy of women faithfully serving the Lord has been carried on for the last 2000 years. Women like Elizabeth Elliot. Who loved the people and shared the gospel with the same men and same warriors who killed her husband. Or women like Lottie Moon. Was one of the first missionaries in a communist China that was closed off to the gospel. And by simply just loving and teaching children, the gospel spread. I mean, we could go on and on and cover woman after woman after woman who have faithfully served the Lord at great sacrifice to themselves and to their families, but who have served the Lord because they love the Lord. But my point is this women. You are precious, you are valuable, and you are needed in the ministry of this church. Serve the Lord and serve the church. And don't for one second think that you have to be married in order to do this completely. Of the nine women that are listed in this list, seven of them are single. Single women, the church needs you too. And there is nothing greater that you can do with your life then serve the Lord. And so do it. Now I need to, to move on. So let me just summarize it like this. The church Paul wrote to here was diverse. It was diverse in ethnicity, in social classes, in genders. And that's a good thing. As a Christian, you are not confined to only be friends with people who are like you. The people of this church that are different from you spend their time differently, have different interests and hobbies, have different social statuses or or marital status. This is your family. And even though we are different, you can't choose family. So celebrate the variety of the people of God. But we also understand that variety just for the sake of variety is not really that good. Unity, commonality, this is a vital to any and every form of friendship, and this includes Christian friendship. It was C.S. Lewis who, who once remarked that friendship is born at the moment one person says to another, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. You see, for friendships to begin and for friendships to thrive, we need common ground. We need something that unifies us, something that unites us, and, and as Christians we have the greatest unifying thread that ties all of us together. We have one Messiah, one mission, one message, and that makes us one people. Notice how often Paul refers to Christ throughout the passage. He says, greet one another in the Lord. I commend Urbanus, who is a, har- a worker in the Lord, or uh, Eponides, who is uh, Beloved in the Lord. We have uh, Pellas who was approved in the Lord. Rufus chosen in the Lord. But over and over and over again. Greet them in Christ Jesus. Love them in Christ Jesus. Welcome them in Christ Jesus. This isn't just Paul's method of speaking. It's, this is unity. These are all former unbelievers. Men and women who used to live in opposition to Christ. And now they are called to greet one another in his name. That's what this Savior does. He takes individuals and makes them a family. We are united by this one Messiah. But we also, in this one Messiah, are given one mission. Several of the commendations that Paul gives to the people here refer to their work effort. Priscilla and Aquila are his fellow workers. Mary worked hard. Andronicus and Junia, his fellow prisoners. Urbanus, his fellow worker. Trefana and Travosa, workers in the Lord, Persis, who worked hard. I mean, even though Paul had never been to Rome, he points to a common work that these people share together. It's the mission of God. Many, if not all, of these people were in some capacity fellow missionaries with Paul. Whether they served side by side or simply worked towards the same goal, it doesn't really matter. They were partners. We can think and point to all sorts of ways that a shared task, a common objective can bring people from all walks together, whether it be sports fans cheering on their team for a championship or neighbors working to improve their community through a project, workers coming together to get a job done. We could even look at world history and point to hostile nations working together to defeat a common enemy like Russia and the U.S. in World War Two. As Christians, you and I, we we have a common purpose. We say it aloud every week at the benediction. Paul gave thanks for his, his fellow workers. And likewise, I am thankful for each one of you. I do not view the ministry that God has called me to here at Bear Creek as my ministry. It is ours. It is not my job to be the only one to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. But we are in it together. It is our mission. And so let us work towards it. How do we do this? How do we accomplish this one mission? By proclaiming the one message. We've seen this message on display throughout Romans that the son of God came to earth. He died on a cross for the sins of his people. He rose again on the third day. This is the message that we proclaim. And this message works. It transforms lives. Paul highlights several of the transformations that have taken place. We could look at uh, Eponidas. Paul says he was the first convert to Christ in Asia. This message applies to all people around all the world. Or we could look at Rufus, who Paul says was chosen in the Lord. How can anyone be saved by this message? Quite simply because God chooses to save them. And he chose Rufus. Or we could look at Apelles who Paul says is approved in Christ. And we don't know the specifics of what this means, but the best guess that we can make is that Apelles was tested in some form. Some hard form of persecution or suffering that caused his faith to be tested. And by God's grace, he came through that test. And the church could look at Apelles and look at his faith and say, your faith is strong. And all this doesn't start this this mission work, this common goal that they're working toward. It doesn't even begin with Paul. There's other people on this list like Andronicus and Junia who were in Christ before Paul. And this couple was actually well known by the apostles. And the reality is that here at Bear Creek, we are an old church. We've been around for a long time. But the message we proclaim is even older. Older. And it's just as needed and necessary today as it was when it was given. That message has not changed since Genesis 3.15. We have the seed of the woman who has come and crushed the head of the serpent. And all of this brings us to this unity that we must guard and encourage We are one people of God. We are saved by one Messiah. We are given one mission to proclaim one message. And we are to do that to the very ends of the earth. Now, this variety and this unity discussion is important. It helps us understand the goodness of Christian friendship. Look how close Paul was with a church he had never been to. It's a good thing. But how do we grow these? How do we take the Christian friendships that God has provided in the church and encourage them and help them to grow and to thrive and to flourish into something precious? I want to give you a few things that I see from the passage for how we can encourage Christian friendships and how we can grow them. I think first we must honor one another. Honor one another. The most repeated word throughout this entire passage is the word greet. And this word is so much more than Paul simply just saying, tell so and so I said hello. By mentioning these people by name and by telling the church to greet them, Paul is he is honoring them in front of the church. He is praising them and pointing them out to the church. I mean, just just imagine, put yourself in the shoes of the Roman church the day that this letter arrived. There you are in in the biggest city in the world, gathered and crammed into this house, 40 or 50 people under this small roof. And this strange woman that you've never seen, they say her name's Phoebe, shows up and she says she's got a letter from Paul. Yeah, that Paul. And so there's excitement, there's nerves, there's what would Paul be writing about? Is he coming our way? What's he here to tell us? And so they open it up and they start reading. And chapter after chapter goes by and there's understanding and there's growth and there's challenging and there's there's gospel being proclaimed. And then you get to chapter 16. And you're sitting in that audience and you're sitting in this crowd and you're trying to follow Paul's writing and you're you're hanging on every word And then all of a sudden you hear from Paul's fingers, from his pen. He says, tell you I said hello. He calls you by name. I mean, the the mighty Apostle Paul, that Paul knows your name. And he just told the entire church that he knows you. That he praises you as a friend, a partner, a loved one. Can you imagine the encouragement that this would bring? I think we need to do likewise. We should be a people who honor one another both publicly and privately. Speak highly of your brothers and sisters. And honor them. Second way that we grow Christian friendship. Hospitality. Hospitality. I think you can look at Paul's commands for how they were to welcome Phoebe or consider the fact that the Roman churches consisted of about 40 or 50 people meeting in various houses. Hospitality runs through this passage. Now, I I believe very firmly that hospitality is one of the most important ways, one of the most effective ways to grow Christian friendship. And at the same time, I also believe that it is one of the most overlooked ways to grow Christian friendship. I mean, listen, I I get it. Having people over into your home, it is a big deal and it can take a lot of work and it can be stressful and exhausting. But if you want to love someone as a friend. Host them in your home. Feed them a meal. Love them through your home and in your home. Because that's what hospitality is. And so do it. Practice hospitality. Third, love and affection. How is Christian friendship grown through love and affection? Paul repeats a, a word uh, for a few of these people on the list. It's the word beloved. And it's a term of, of personal and dear men, And it likely points that Paul had a, a close personal relationship with these people, with these individuals. And you will also notice in verse 16, a verse I have not touched yet, that Paul commands them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if you want to take this literally, I will invite anyone who does to come and stand at the back with me after service. And you can put this into practice today and give everyone who leaves a holy kiss on their way out. But I don't think Paul wants us to do that. I don't think he it's a command to literally kiss everyone. But I think the principle behind it remains true. As Christians, we must not shy away from outwardly showing our love and affection for one another. Because that's what this is. Paul is not only telling them, love one another. He is saying, show them you love them. Give hugs, embrace one another, be close to one another. And it doesn't have to be this physically awkward thing where we're forcing something to to obey it. But. I think that if we understand that as a church we are family and that as a church we love one another, we should be comfortable showing our affection to one another. Because we're family. Lastly, how has Christian friendship grown? Through thankfulness. Thankfulness. Be thankful for one another. I mean, you can almost see the thankfulness jumping off the page as Paul talks about these people. The church is a gift. It is a precious family that you have been given by God. Are you thankful for it? Are you thankful for the people around you this morning? Are you thankful that the, the, the men and the women and the children who are sitting beside you and in front of you and behind you, are you thankful that you can call them family? Have you thanked God for them? Have you told them how thankful you are for them? Be thankful. Now, look, we've spent enough time on this, and so I'll end here. Christian friendship is a blessing, it is a gift. There are brothers and sisters serving in places around the world. Where there are, not, there are no brothers and sisters. There are no family members that they can rely on. But you, Bear Creek, have been given a blessing. A gift in this church. Embrace it. It is one of the many, many privileges of belonging to Christ. Because you also belong to his family. And so I'll, I'll close this morning with one of the ways that Sinclair Ferguson closed so many of his sermons on Romans. Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? Pray with me. God, you give us things that we we do not even know we need them. And you provide them and you bless us with them and we are thankful. We are thankful for the gift of friends. We are thankful for the gift of a church family. Help us to grow these relationships. Help us to nurture them. Help 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 the friendships that you have given us in this church to thrive and to flourish. And bless us, Father.